This podcast covers a murder that occurred in 1983. It is a true story, and while I have relied heavily on police reports and public documents, the opinions of the host and interviewees are simply that, opinions, not facts. The credibility of the witnesses and what they say is to be determined by the listener. Everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Before I get started, just a note. This episode contains some pretty graphic language that I will be reading directly from a police report. Sometime during those initial minutes and hours after Jeanette's body was found, county police rushed into the buckboard bar next door to Gamble's. Apparently, they had landed on the possibility that the killer could have left the Gamble store somehow and come into the buckboard bar, cleaned up in their bathroom, and then continued on in his getaway. There really aren't any front windows on the building. I remember they came in suddenly and were emptying trash cans, going through the bathrooms. They didn't say what they were doing at first, but I did have to unlock the basement door for them. We knew there was something going on, but we didn't know what. This is the account from Carrie. She worked at the bar next door and was working on the day of the murder. She said it was slow that day, with only a few regulars at the bar, and it was sometime after lunch. They told me there had been a murder next door and they needed to check my basement. I unlocked the basement door, it was padlocked, but I didn't go down with them. Carrie told me that she rarely went down into the basement to begin with, and then only to get extra mops or buckets. She was aware of a door on the front of the basement wall below where the front door at street level would be, beneath the sidewalk, and from what the detective told her, that doorway opened into a passage that accessed the entire block below the sidewalk. These access points were once used for coal deliveries. Carrie said that she believed at that point some businesses had already had their doors blocked, so she didn't know how far the killer could have gotten around below ground at that time. But according to the police, there was at least a question at that time if the killer could have been moving around down there underground. Carrie said that the police didn't make her close the bar while they searched, but would not let any new customers inside. She was told by one of the officers that Jeanette had left for lunch and was murdered shortly after returning. Carrie said that she and the customers that were in the bar when they came in were questioned as a group, and they were asked questions like if anyone came in and was acting strange, or if anyone went into the bathroom for a long time, or if anyone basically saw anything out of the ordinary. They also wanted to know if any of them had been in the pet store that day, and if they had, had they seen anything unusual? Did anyone know Jeanette? Things like that. Carrie said, 
The thinking was that the person had maybe come in there and used the bathroom to clean up. I thought the whole theory of someone coming in there in the middle of the afternoon was ridiculous, since during the day it was usually regulars, and anyone different would surely have been noticed, especially if they had suddenly popped out of the basement. Carrie said that the police were there for about 20 or 30 minutes, and they didn't take anything out as far as evidence. When I spoke to Detective Southworth, he did confirm to me that they had, at some point, obtained blueprints in order to check underground access points in the basements. When I spoke to Lauren Thorson, who did the evidence collection, he was not aware of any basement-to-basement -basement access, nor did he collect any evidence in any passageways or basement-to-basement -basement access points. It was certainly something that they looked into, but nothing ever came out of it. It does appear to be just another compelling bit of information that ended up not playing any role at all into how the killer got out of gambles. Theodore Platts was the officer with the Reed City Police Department who had assaulted two Michigan State Police Troopers and a customer at the Buckboard Bar, next door to Gamble's, in December of 1982, a few weeks before the murder. He is also the only law enforcement officer that was fingerprinted, according to the report, and that's likely because he was in the store twice on the day of the murder. Because his entire witness statement was redacted, along with all of the witness statements in the report, I don't know what times he was at the store as a patron. All I know is that he was there twice, according to Detective Pratt. Early on in his report, he noted, quote, Northern County's evidence service had been requested to do the scene prior to the undersigned's arrival with Director Lauren Thorson coming to the scene being assisted by evidence technicians Sergeant Marvin Dornbos of the Cadillac Police Department, Sergeant David Bailey of the Wexford County Sheriff's Department, Patrol Officer Theodore Platts of the Reed City Police Department, and Detective Sergeant James Southworth of the Osceola County Sheriff's Department, along with the undersigned in processing the scene. It is unclear when Officer Platts arrived or who called him, although former Osceola County Prosecutor James Tulaski told me that Platts was present when he arrived at the scene. When I interviewed Detective Pratt for the book, I asked him who called Platts to the scene and he said he didn't know. I also asked him if he knew Platts was suspended at the time and he said he was not aware that he was. Prosecutor Tulaski confirmed to me that he was and went further to say that there was a warrant for his arrest on Tulaski's desk on the day of Jeanette's murder. This was for the bar assault. According to the incident report regarding the assault at the Buckboard Bar, 
Michigan State Troopers Lyle and Norman were at the Reed City Post when they received a call from the barmaid. Trooper Lyle took the call and she asked who was on duty for Reed City PD. Here is an excerpt from the report. Sergeant Horchner attempted to raise a Reed City PD car, but obtained no reply. Suddenly, the complainant was heard to yell over the phone, Hey, hey! Trooper Lyle then indicated that he was still on the phone, and the complainant asked that a patrol unit be sent, as Ted Platts was in the bar, drunk, and beating on one of the patrons, and she wanted him to leave. Troopers Lyle and Norman responded, and Sergeant Horchner stated that he would get a hold of Reed City PD police chief and ascertain if anyone from Reed City PD was working and advise them of the incident. While en route, radio traffic from the post advised that no one was working for Reed City PD and that the Reed City police chief was not going to respond. He advised that he wanted our department to handle the incident. Troopers tried to contact Police Chief Rathbun multiple times, and they were eventually told by him that he was not coming to the scene, and he instructed them to, quote, do what they must do. Chief Rathbun had held a holiday party earlier that night, and Officer Platts had attended, according to an interview he did with the Osceola Herald newspaper in March, following his firing. There were multiple witnesses to the incident at the buckboard. According to the barmaid, Officer Platts came into the bar around 12.30 a.m. and she served him one drink, and it was obvious that he was already inebriated. He sat down next to a couple that he knew, a husband and wife, and began a conversation. At some point, Platts referred to the female as a broad, to which the husband took umbrage. He told Platts not to make comments about his wife. A brief argument ensued, which then settled back into a conversation shortly thereafter. Moments later, according to the witness report of the barmaid, she heard the husband say, one of these times you are gonna be without your uniform. Platts unzipped his jacket and said, I don't have it on now. The barmaid's statement continued, quote, the husband then asked Platts if he wanted to go out back and discuss the matter, and the two men got up and left the bar and walked into the restroom together. It was at this time that the barmaid phoned the state police requesting officers. The barmaid states, after hanging up the phone, she heard loud voices and a loud thumping noise coming from the men's restroom. At this point, a young man, also seated at the bar, got up and said to the barmaid, I'm sorry all this is happening. I'll be right back. The young man who was assaulted, listed as a 28-year-old bar patron, also gave a statement. We in the bar could still hear them arguing, so I went into the bathroom to quiet them down. The young man went into the restroom and the barmaid heard loud voices again, and it sounded like the walls were gonna come down. The barmaid went to the men's restroom door and opened it and found Platts holding the young man against the wall by his neck and yelling, I don't need any motherfucking kid 
telling me what to do. Then Platts drove the young man to the floor hard. At that time, I went back to the bar and the state police officers came through the front door. Platts, coming from the restroom towards the bar, saw the state police officers and stated, what is the state police doing in my city? The husband who hadn't been all that happy with Mr. Platts calling his wife abroad also gave a statement. I have known Ted for a long time and always been able to talk to him. This time was different. He called my wife abroad. I was mad because he said that. He started to talk about things that happened a few years ago. My wife moved because she didn't want to hear him. I asked him if he would talk to me in the restroom. We went into the restroom and Ted Platts and I started discussing things, probably loud, and the young man came in the restroom and started yelling at Ted. Ted yelled at him and hit him in the face and hit him in the face again. Ted turned him around and hit him again. We then went out of the restroom and the bartender asked everyone to leave. There were two state police officers telling Ted to come along with them. Ted said, no way, not until the bartender tells him to leave. So then he antagonized the state police until they had to use force to take him to the floor when glass and bottles and chairs were broken at the bar. From the report, Officers arrived at the Buckboard Bar and upon entering found victim one, Robert Smith, sitting with his back towards the door on the south end of the bar. The suspect, Theodore Earl Platts, was walking toward the south end of the bar from the area of the restrooms. Trooper Lyle moved to where Mr. Smith was sitting and inquired as to what was happening. At this time, Mr. Smith advised that everything was all right now and it didn't matter. Trooper Norman approached the complainant and was inquiring as to what occurred. The suspect yelled at the officers. Norman and Lyle, what the hell is the state police doing in my city? Trooper Lyle responded by telling him they had been asked to come to the bar as there was no one working for Reed City PD. The suspect then yelled, oh hell, I'm tired of you two working in my city. You want to know what happened? I'll tell you what happened. I hit that son of a bitch. Suspect pointed to Mr. Smith and further added, I hit him right in the head. No young punk is going to tell me what to do. Trooper Lyle then inquired of Mr. Smith if he had been hit and he replied yes. Trooper Lyle then asked if Mr. Platts had been the one who struck him and he replied yes. Trooper Norman ascertained from the complainant that an assault had occurred and the suspect had committed the assault and that she wanted him to leave. Trooper Norman then requested the complainant to inform the suspect to leave and she turned to the suspect and advised him that she wanted him to leave. The suspect made no movements to leave and continued to yell obscenities at Mr. Smith and both officers. The suspect yelled, I'm not leaving because the state police say I have to leave, and I hit that son of a bitch, pointing again to Mr. Smith. Arrest me. Go ahead. Arrest me. 
Trooper Lyle advised the suspect that the complainant wanted him to leave, and he replied, I'm not going to leave and the state police can't make me. I'll only leave if she says I have to, and pointed to the complainant. At this time, Trooper Lyle asked the complainant to again tell Mr. Platts he had to leave. The complainant looked at the suspect, and then the suspect asked, Do you want me to leave? And the complainant replied, Yes, Ted. I think it's for the best. The suspect then replied, Okay, I'm leaving, but only because she wants me to and not because you two say I have to. Fuck the state police. The suspect then started to move toward the south doorway past the officers. But the suspect then stopped, turned around, and walked back up to the officers and yelled, You two can't go around pushing people around. And you, Norman, I don't care if you were shot before. It doesn't give you the right to push people either. Trooper Norman then informed the suspect again that he would have to leave, and if he didn't, they would have to escort him out. The suspect became visibly upset. Upon hearing Trooper Norman's statement that if he didn't leave, the officers would have to escort him out of the bar, the suspect yelled, you two think you can make me leave? And then repeated the same statement. Officers made no reply, and the suspect raised both of his hands and pointed a finger of each hand toward the officers and yelled, you two can't make me leave, and gestured with the pointing finger of each hand toward the officers. Suddenly, the suspect reached and moved toward the officers and grabbed the front of each officer's jacket and drove with his body and hands the officers back. The suspect continued to push forcefully the officers backwards. The action caused the tables to be overturned as well as the chairs and caused empty bottles on the tables to be broken. Trooper Lyle was able to free himself from the grasp of the suspect and gained a submissive hold on the suspect's right arm and applied leverage. This action, coupled with the driving motion of the suspect, caused the officers to slam to the floor along with the suspect. The suspect, having hit the floor forcefully, laid somewhat passively and Trooper Lyle maintained enough pressure to ensure he would remain passive until Trooper Norman cuffed the suspect. The suspect sustained a contusion to the forehead caused when both of the officers and the suspect slammed to the floor. Also, the suspect had a small amount of blood just below his nose, which also occurred upon impact of the floor. These were the extent of the injuries sustained by the suspect while in the custody of Troopers Norman and Lyle. After the suspect had been subdued, and was being led by Trooper Lyle out of the bar, the suspect yelled, Norman, you're dead. I'm going to kill you, you motherfucking son of a bitching nigger. Just as the suspect and Trooper Lyle started through the door going out, the suspect stated, 16 years I've been a police officer and I only have one more year before retirement and now that's gone. Just prior to officers' attempts to persuade the suspect to leave the buckboard bar, Trooper Lyle used his portable radio to contact the post for the Reed City PD chief to come to the scene as the suspect was very intoxicated and it was felt that the suspect would not be cooperative with officers and it was their intention to avoid violence with the off-duty Reed City police officer. 
after the assault by the suspect on the officers and the subsequent arrest of the suspect, Trooper Lyle again contacted the post via portable radio and advised the post of the assault and arrest of the suspect. Trooper Lyle again asked if Reed City Police Chief was en route to the scene. The post advised that the chief was not coming to the scene and for the officers to do what they must do, in the words of the chief. At the suggestion of the Reed City Police Chief, Philip Rathbun, they called for an Osceola County Sheriff's Department unit for backup. As Trooper Lyle and the suspect were exiting the bar, Officer Davis of the Osceola County Sheriff's Department arrived. The suspect was placed into a county patrol unit with a prisoner cage due to the suspect's still violent condition. The suspect was then transported to the Osceola County Jail. At the Osceola County Jail, the suspect continued to say that he was going to kill that nigger son of a bitch and that he will never see the daylight again. These statements were repeated over and over by the suspect. According to the Osceola County Jail intake form, the suspect was violent and hit his right hand against the booking window many times, and it also notes that as a result, he was treated at the hospital. On December 29th, less than a month before Jeanette Robertson's murder, the pioneer ran a short couple paragraphs on the assault. Reed City officer pleads innocent to assault. A Reed City police officer has pleaded innocent to charges of assaulting a man and two state police troopers while off duty at the Buckboard Bar on Upton Avenue, December 21st. Theodore Earl Platts, 42, of Reed City, was released on personal recognizance and $1,000 bond on the two charges. He demanded examination and waived the 12-day rule in 77th District Court. Platts is charged with assaulting Robert A. Smith at the Reed City Bar. Troopers Gary L. Lyle and Harry E. Norman Jr. investigated that complaint. Platts allegedly assaulted the officers when they arrived on scene. Reed City Police Chief Philip Rathbun said his department did not reply to the call as there was not an officer on duty at the time. It was a routine off time for the city department. Platts is on sick leave at this time. He called in, saying he had a broken hand. City Manager James Nordstrom is quoted in an article as saying, Under the union contract, an officer can use vacation and sick time and still collect a paycheck while incapacitated. Effective February 18, 1983, Theodore Platts was notified of his termination of the employment with this city. According to the Pioneer newspaper, it wasn't until September 12, 1983, eight months later, that Theodore Platts pled guilty to attempted resisting, obstructing or assaulting a police officer in Osceola County Circuit Court before Judge Lawrence C. Root. Platts was sentenced in November in Osceola County Circuit Court, ordered to pay a fine of $100, costs of $300, to serve 30 days in the Osceola County Jail under a work release program, and placed on probation for two years. Apparently, Osceola County is extremely forgiving. Mr. Platts would go on to become the head of the probation department for Osceola County.
The buckboard bar assault, as well as the situation around Prop B or Proposal B, are a reflection of what I now know was a fairly significant amount of tension between law enforcement entities at the time. As I earlier noted, there were three different law enforcement entities located in Reed City in 1983, and it doesn't appear that they were always interested in playing nice. Now, I want to ask you about how the different law enforcement entities got along back then, like city, county, and state, because there was some uh, a lot of sort of arguing back and forth between city, state, and county in the newspapers. They, they wanted to get some uh, proposition on the ballot, I think it was. And so from your perspective as someone on the ground, did it feel like they worked well together, or was there a tension between the different uh, departments? They all pretty much worked well together, okay? Certain officers had animosities toward other officers, and this one certain officer that worked for the city did not like this black officer, and they got in a big fight right in the buckboard bar once upon a time. Okay. Yes, I'll cover that, that because it does relate to the story a little bit. So basically, other than those two particular people, everything seemed cohesive, or was there certain animosities between between certain people? Yeah, that was just basically those two, and uh, there was maybe a couple more. You know, like, like a couple county cops didn't particularly care for a couple of state troopers, but that's because state troopers always thought that they were better than everybody else type thing. Oh, I you see. Know? Okay. They walk around with their noses in the air. You say hi to them. They look at you, kind of like give you a grunt with a wave, you know, like, yeah, I really don't want to do this, but I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway, you know, type thing. Gotcha. But when it came to working together, they all pitched in and became like one big happy family. Okay, so that's good to know if it got cohesive once they hit the scene. Um, do you know of, for example, so now I know that Basically, the order of this happened was Finkbeiner got there first, uh, Primo was with him, uh, EMS rolled up right around the same time as Larry was at the front door, uh, apparently shooing some customers out, trying to clear the store out, and then they had to go back and get some of them and get them back so they could talk to them. But basically, it went to Finkbeiner and then led um, Gary McGee downstairs. Primo was right behind him. Then it was Southworth, and then the um, sheriff's department people started fl- filtering in. It was pretty quick, within a you know a quick clip there. Um, but yet, state didn't get the scene turned over to them until sometime after 5.30, after the evidence van had arrived. And it took the prosecutor stepping in to do that. So I'm wondering if there was, if, did you, if you noticed at the time, was there a sense that when a, when a call was being handled uh, by county, so this, this call was turned over from city to county very early, because obviously the city guys don't even have any training at all to deal with a crime scene. So right. then it's turned over, Finkbeiner says he turned it over to um, Southworth. So they had it for like, uh, till after five five thirty, and that she was found at ten to four. So that's an hour and a half. Do you do you believe there was any? I don't know how I word it. Stubbornness in turning it over to state was that ever an issue where they didn't want to turn over a, a oh, yeah, case? That, that that case wanted the uh, county wanted to hang on to it. First off, city wanted to take it, but then city turned around and county had already investigated the majority of it. 
okay? Mm-hmm. They were always the first ones there in the whole 10 yards, so the city kind of backed off on it. The state turned, I think the state kind of made the city back off, to tell you the truth. And then the state wanted to take it because, hey, now you got yourself a top-notch crime happening in a little itty-bitty town. If it can be solved, who wants to take the credit for that? Is it going to be county? Is it going to be state? Darn sure isn't going to be city because city's been called off of it. So right. whoever wants, whoever at that point in time wants to grab that that high, I don't know what you call it, high crime, mm-hmm. you know, in a little itty bitty town, it usually doesn't a whole heck of a lot happen in that little town. Right. So naturally, they're going to battle over who's going to take that call and who's going to be the ones to lead the investigation. Okay. And as it, as, it, as it turned out, it was a, about the most botched thing I've ever seen in my entire life. So do you think that played into it, oh, the, the tug-of-war over the scene? Oh, yeah. Hmm. I think it did. I think ones were, were jumping on, trying to jump on something too quick without, making a, without thinking it through first. First of all, it, wasn't the training different for city cops versus county cops versus state cops? Oh, yeah. Training is always, we're always totally different between each and every department. So I would imagine that the, you know, no one at that scene there that day really had any um, ability to do any crime scene, um, uh, like evidence gathering, right? They have to call labs and people in to do that. Right. And the thing of it is, what they should have done is secured the scene. Just plain secured it. Don't. Don't have anybody go in there. Don't have anybody come out of there, whatever the case might be. But take that bugger off and wait for the crime scene, actual people who do that for a living out of Grand Rapids, which is only 60 miles away and going. I know when I was driving ambulance, when I could I could make it from Reed City to Butterworth Hospital in Grand Rapids in a grand total of 40 minutes. It would only take an approximately maybe one hour of holding off that scene for actual crime scene investigators to get there. And as it turned out, Lauren Thorson, with, who came from Kalkaska, he was the one that owned the Northern County Evidence Service, and they were called in by Osceola. I guess the state police would have called in the, the, the state police crime lab people, but county was contracted with this Northern County Evidence Service. It was sort of a new thing because what it was is they would have trained one deputy per each sheriff's department in the district, and then that deputy was supposed to be trained and know how to close off a scene and do just what you just described. But unfortunately, um, before that person got there, what city had already city was the first person, according to reports, to to draw, to walk through that scene. It was Finkbeiner was the first person in, not county. So unless their reports are wrong, Finkbeiner walked down first and led Gary through there. County and then were all behind them. So you've got all these people in that back room. Then what we have after that is uh, the prosecutor's account. Somebody from there called him, and it says in um, Southworth's report that he called Rathbun. He called, I mean, after he went and saw it, he came out to his radio and called Rathbun. He called, um, who was it, Um, one of your deputies that had just become a detective also. Um, And then there was 
the sheriff and he called Tulaski. Well, Tulaski came down and he said by the time he got there, all of the both apartments were standing down there in that basement. And you know it's small down there. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah that that um, pet store was no bigger than your living room and your kitchen. Yeah, together. yeah, it's a one long room, but the back room where they were all in was tiny, tiny. I mean that they had to just been stepping all over possible footprints. You know, I mean, exactly. exactly. Then taking and anybody touching anything, now you just added another set of, you know, fingerprints that contaminated everything that was down there. Right, right. And it's such a closed space. And I mean, I the thing is, the EMTs were there so close with the first responders. You have to let him at least assess her real quick. But after that, he they left that Gary left that room. They went out and upstairs until they were told to leave and then come back later that night. So. The, I guess my biggest concern, because it does feel like uh, Finkbeiner turned it over pretty quickly to the Osceola County from their reports, because Finkbeiner and Southworth's reports line up. So it does appear that it was turned over to, to county very quickly, within the, you know, by 4.15. But uh, not till in about an hour later did Detective Pratt arrive, and then at, not even until after an hour after that when Lauren arrived, because Lauren told me he said he was— met at the back door by one of the city police officers who wasn't even in uniform who walked him downstairs and showed him around the basement and he was maybe there 20 minutes and he said there were too many people down there there was nobody knew who was in charge he said and that's concerning if if that means that they were still trying to decide whose whose case it was and then finally he said if someone doesn't get this scene under control i'm leaving and so that's when um Tulaski said they took a break, and that's when he assigned officially the um, case over to Pratt, and then he was doing the crime scene stuff. So that's a long time for a scene to be in such disarray where nobody even knows who the boss of that scene is. Exactly. Everything should have been set up, like I say, first thing you should do is rope off the scene. That's the very, very first thing you do. Get everybody the heck out of there, rope off the scene. Then set up a command center. And that command center is what is in charge. Who turns around and does what? Where they're going to send them, what officers they're sending, the whole bit. None of that was done. None of that was done. Well, I will say that because of how many people converged so fast and because of how shocking that scene must have been, I have to give them a little bit of initial slack because, holy crap, it must have been really shocking. You know, it must have been, for a minute, what do we do? There weren't a lot of homicides, and certainly not a lot that the county cops handled. Right. Right. All right. Well, that is what it is. We can't change any of that now, you know. A Michigan State Police Department amendment, Proposal B, was on the November 82 ballot in Michigan as a initiated constitutional amendment and was heartily defeated. Depending on which law enforcement entity you asked at the time, you were likely to get a different answer as to what Proposal B even was. What surrounded it, though, was a great deal of contention. On October 28, 1982, the Osceola County Herald ran an advertisement titled, Who Thinks Proposal B is Bad for Michigan? The names on the list, along with their smiling faces, 
were both the Democratic and Republican candidates for governor that year. You can't get both parties to agree on almost anything, but apparently in 1982, neither party wanted anything to do with Prop B if they were up for election. Even the director of the Michigan Department of State Police said, no thanks. Locally, it was Reed City Police Chief Philip Rathbun and Osceola County Sheriff David Needham versus the state troopers. Dueling pieces ran together in the same edition of the Osceola County Herald. According to the city and county cops, it went a little deeper than the keep troopers on the job bumper stickers that were all over town would have you believe. This excerpt is from the October 28th Herald article titled, Local Police Officers Opposed to Proposal B. First of all, they, the Troopers Association, would have the Department of State Police be the only department out of 20 as part of the Constitution and guaranteed their jobs. How about the 19 other departments which are equally as important to the operation of the state? We're sure they have equally as many, if not more, dedicated people who are serving the citizens of the state in their various capacities. Economically speaking, why guarantee a segment of public employees' immunity to the checks and balances of good business? This opinion piece was signed by Reed City Police Chief Philip Rathman, Everett Police Chief Randy Cruz, and Osceola County Sheriff David Needham. The state troopers countered with this pretty aggressive full statement by Michigan State Police Post Troopers Association, Reed City Post Representative Richard King. It was titled, Trooper Comments on Defeat of Proposal B. To the editor, Elections have come and gone, and I, for one, am glad it's over. It was entirely the worst mudslinging campaign that I have ever heard. We are disappointed with the defeat of Proposal B. We will accept that as the voice of the people because that was their decision and that is the way the election process should work. Perhaps the defeat of the proposal was our own fault due to lack of good publicity. If that were the only reason, we humbly accept the defeat and apologize for not giving the people the proper publicity. Our problem was we ran out of money. We feel, however, that our lack of supportive information was not the real reason for the failure. The real credit should go to the Michigan Sheriff's Association, the Michigan Association of Chiefs of Police, the Michigan Deputy Sheriff's Association, and the Police Officers Association of Michigan, who collectively, and with a lot of others, garnered outside help, got their heads together, and put out some of the best propaganda that was in this election campaign. Their publicity, without exception to any single statement, was totally comprised of false statements, misleading statements, or complete fallacies, which in turn misled the people or confused them to the point that people voted no because they didn't know what to believe. Those statements were a total surprise and a disappointment also. I still can't believe that our local officials, people that we work with every day, would lower themselves to the level of mudslinging politicians and personally endorse such material. It was stated that we were sacrificing our integrity. I can't understand how. We simply put an issue on the ballot for the vote of the people. We told no lies. We printed no fallacies. And we gave you, the people, no misleading statements. I think it would be rather foolish for us to even attempt a ballot issue on lies and fallacies. If anyone sacrificed their integrity, in my book, 
it was the mudslingers of the campaign, and I am sorry for them that they felt they had to put themselves in that position. The literature said Michigan would become a police state with the passage of the proposal. We asked only for an additional 114 men, which would have put us up to the authorized enlisted strength that we had two years ago. What is a police state then? They also said that Proposal B would threaten the future of neighborhood police and sheriff's departments. Were they threatened two years ago? No. In fact, the sheriff departments were beefed up with the secondary road patrols, House Bill 416. They said it would write the troopers and sergeants union contract into the Constitution. That is a flat-out lie. There was no wording in the language of the proposal that said anything about our contract or our collective bargaining being a part of the constitutional amendment, and to say otherwise is lying. I could go on and on, but I'm not going to. In closing, I want to emphatically state that we had no intention of deceiving anyone. We are not a bunch of deceitful liars trying to rip off the public, as was implicated. We are appalled by the malicious and vicious attack upon us by the aforementioned associations. We hope that at least some of the people will have recognized the propaganda for what it truly was, political mudslinging. The people can rest assured that we will continue to do our job as we always have. We are a proud bunch of people and we have sworn to do the job for which we were hired. Nothing has changed because of the failure of Proposal B. There, I have said what I wanted to say. I feel there is a possibility of a response to this letter from someone wanting to defend their actions, and I guess that is their prerogative. In any case, I feel the issue is dead. I have said all I am going to say, and I will not respond to any more attacks. Thank you for listening. Richard King, Michigan State Police Troopers Association, Reed City, Post Representative. Politics at its finest, to be sure. Even Theodore Platts, weeks after his termination from the Reed City Police Department, had something to say about Prop B within the context of his firing. It's not a secret that I had complained to the state police post in Reed City, as well as my chief, on the increased activities of two state police troopers, namely the troopers that arrested me. Also, I'm an officer who quite vocally opposed the Prop B issue, much to the displeasure of several troopers. I should also note that after the proposal failed, some of the troopers held grudges against me. One has to wonder if this sort of animosity between law enforcement officers played any part in the Jeanette Robertson murder investigation given this was all coming to a head right around the time of the murder. In the next episode, I will cover suspects and persons of interest who were looked at according to the Michigan State Police report. These will be the people who were repeatedly looked into by Detective Pratt, as well as questioned again by Detectives Albright and Vincent. Stay tuned.